2023, is sex redeemable? Have we so distorted and degraded the biblical notion of sex through the pill and pornography that good, clean sex between, you know, like married people is a lost cause? In this, the second episode of our season on all things sex, we speak with married Catholic priest and researcher, <laughs> Dr. Paul Solins. We look at the biblical case for sex and whether the sexual revolution has been a net win or a net loss. Uh, what the limits are to biblical sex and beyond opinions or interpretation, what the data tells us about our new ideas around sex. Yes, we'll actually try to tackle all of that in about an hour on today's Theology On Air. Well, thanks for listening to Theology On Air. I'm Evan McClanahan. I'm the pastor here at First Lutheran in Houston. I'm joined uh, by Sarah Stone, Director of Community and Evangelistic Outreach at Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about Houston Theology on Tap. Of course, Theology on Air is an outgrowth of Theology on Tap here in Houston. And you can learn more about us at HoustonTOT.com, learn about our leadership team, what churches we serve, where to find us, where to learn more. Of course, we want you to like this, review it, say happy things about us uh, on the uh, on the internet, and drive more people to this content. Uh, as you know, we've changed our format recently to one of seasons where we're trying to do more exhaustive looks at topical issues. This is our season on all things sex. And to make sure we don't just talk about, you know, the controversial issues. Wait, they're all controversial, yes. aren't they? Yeah. Well, they're all spicy, um, at least. Yeah. Uh, we want to take some time to lay the groundwork for what the Bible says about sex. And you might be surprised to learn that, for example, heterosexuals can sin too. <laughs> uh, but today we're joined by Dr. Paul Solins. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Paul Solins is a senior research associate of the Ruth Institute, which is how I heard of him. He recently retired as professor of sociology at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's a leader in the field of research on same-sex parenting and its implications for child development. He's written four books and over 100 journal articles, research reports, and essays on issues of family, faith, and culture. His reports on clerical sexual abuse from the Pennsylvania grand jury data, uh, John Jay data, Los Angeles Times, and other sources have garnered international acclaim. Formerly Episcopalian, Dr. Solens is a married Catholic priest. So for all of you out there who are saying a Catholic priest can't know anything about the topic that we're talking about, well, he is married. So there. Mm -hmm. uh, he earned a PhD at Catholic University in 1997, taught there until 19 or from 1998 until his retirement. He and his wife, Patricia, have an interracial family of three children, two adopted. Mm -hmm. He serves as associate pastor of the Church of St. Mark the Evangelist in Hyattsville, Maryland. So, Dr. Solens, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, maybe give us a quick introduction, how you got into this kind of line of work. Uh, obviously controversial. Uh, what what interests you about it? And then we'll kind of start to, to drill down from there. Yeah, certainly. Uh, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be with you today. Um, I, um, uh, when I retired uh, from Catholic University, I taught sociology there for a long time, um, uh, sociology of religion. Um, and I, I did um, some studies on gender and religion, which got me in the beginning of this topic. Um, but it really uh, took off uh, when I retired and I started looking at uh, same-sex marriage and the issues leading up to the 2015 de decision in Obergefell. I studied uh, children who were with uh, same-sex parents. Hmm. 
and I found that the narrative that we were being told was the opposite of the truth, that there were uh, significant problems uh, that could be seen in the population data for these children and also were being reported by adults who had grown up with same-sex parents and it was being kind of suppressed. Um, but that got me into that the issue of homosexuality. And as you mentioned, I've, I've done some uh, reports on uh, clergy uh, homosexuality in the Catholic Church, which is a very uh, um, conflicted issue, certainly among Catholics. Um, and uh, that led to kind of getting into the whole gender war, gender ideology business um, and, and looking at a lot of these issues. Um, what I've come to understand is that the uh, so-called sexual revolution really primed and prompted almost all of these issues that we're facing today, uh, both on a personal level and on a social level. Um, we have been led down a false path. Mm. Uh, uh, prompted by, um, and this may be controversial for you, but uh, beginning with, I think, uh, removal of restrictions on contraception, mm -hmm. uh, then uh, a widespread divorce, no-fault divorce uh, that, that broke, have broken families up, uh, uh, furthered by um, widely available uh, abortion without restrictions, which creates the illusion that you can separate sex relations from mm -hmm. children and from the procreation of children. And once that happens, it opens the door to lots of uh, difficulties in understanding anything about sex. Uh, sex is our means for reproducing our species. But if we deny that that's happening, then you, we, we're faced with all kinds of difficulties on how, how we should uh, uh, place sex, where what should be the place of it in our lives? What, what are men and women for? And that leads us today to even talking about what are men and women. Uh, we're mm. not even sure what those are anymore. Uh, <laughs> so we've um, we've kind of um, uh, forgotten uh, what it means to be male, female, uh, and significantly, we've forgotten that that is a, a large part of the image of God in our mm -hmm. in, in our lives. Uh, so we, you could say that we've forgotten God, and so we've forgotten who we are sexually, or it could be the other way around. Um, but that's that's kind of a story of how I got uh, drawn into these things more and more. Lately, I've been looking at, mostly, at uh, bans on conversion therapy um, um, for persons who are in uh, an LGBT identity of some sort uh, and want to leave that, or they may want to leave just the behavior uh, and, and not try to leave the attractions or they may want to try to leave the attractions or the, where they want to usually do that because they want to live in accord with their religious beliefs with with their faith conviction or or because they want to um pursue a positive relationship in marriage with someone of the opposite sex um and so as you may know um there are many efforts to to um ban or uh, make not possible uh, those kinds of therapies. So my latest research shows that persons who undergo that kind of therapy are not harmed by it. In fact, uh, it reduces their suicidality by about mm. 100%, about oh. half suicidality. Again, it's it's a false narrative that's being put forth 
uh, that tries to, to show the opposite to be true. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but that's all just part of the um, almost willful denial uh, of of what sex is and what yeah. sex is for in our day. Well, I I remember a few years ago um, right. there was an article in First Things. I believe the author was a female, but I don't remember who it was. But she made a pretty convincing case <clears throat> of this kind of uh, slippery slope, if you will, mm-hmm. beginning with. You know, a, a you know the, the birth control pill, but really a contraceptive uh, mentality that led you mm-hmm. know to all the things you just said. You know, no fault divorce. You know, abortion. Right. Um, right. And then, and now we're at the point where we don't even know what gender is, and and some of us think that's okay, and some of us think that's kind of a problem. But um, yeah. we 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 did, and we've already recorded it, and it'll come out later in the podcast series. Uh, um, we're we're going to look at the transgender mm-hmm. issue as well. We've interviewed Nancy Piercy for that. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Uh, and her work on that. But I think uh, I think there'd be a lot of uh, agreement there. But let's kind of try to go back a little bit, kind of set the stage. Okay. Um, give us a brief overview of the biblical case for sex. You know, I mean, we this is theology on tap. We are all Christians here. So what purpose does uh, sex serve? You know, what are what are some biblical texts that we might look to for that? I know we could we could do the whole thing just on the, on those questions, but maybe kind of an sure. overview of the Bible and sex, what does it have to say on the topic? Okay. Uh, well, uh, of course, in the, in the beginning, we, we should say, uh, God created the human race uh, without sex. Uh, there was just one kind of person. Um, and uh, as you know, the biblical story, um, there, were, uh, there was an attempt to satisfy the needs of the man through the created order, uh, which was not successful. Uh, and so um, sex is God's provision um, in the biblical account of companionship for the man. Um, and that's companionship in a kind of uh, ontological sense. Mm-hmm. So that when um, the, the woman w- was created, he, she was recognized by the man as um, an an alternate identity that he could relate to. Uh, Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Um, And so um, the the creation of sexes um, brought man out of isolation into relationality. now, I believe that we find also our identity in our relations, in relationality. Uh, and so, in a way, it it helped man to understand who he was. Um, the, mm, I like that. The, the, the scriptures tell us next that um, male and female, uh, the, the creation of man, male and female, um, was a reflection of the image of God. Uh, you may know that verse. I'm not sure I can quote it exactly, but it says God created man in his image, male and female. He created them. Um, and what that, um, I believe, tells us is that um, we reflect the character of God when we relate as male and female. There's something profound uh, about that relationship. Um that is that is divine. Um, 
So let me just stop you because that's I think a really important point. But would you say that there it's not that it's not that a a man or a woman uh, is made in the image of God, meaning that for example they have personality or they have knowledge of morality or they or or they have a spiritual side or something. I mean, a lot of people have tried to figure out what is this what is the image of God, you know. Uh, but you're saying it's it's the it's the kind of male and female together that you know it could be all those things too but you need right. you need the two things together to understand the fullness of the image of god yeah I, the classic description would be rationality uh, okay. that the human reason reflects the image of god that's in the sort of a Thomistic tradition and and aristotelian um but um those are uh, very individualistic concepts of the of the human person, right? Mm-hmm. A a, a, um, a a unified being in and of itself is how they each conceived of us. And what we, um, I think, are beginning to understand today that is that we have to think of human personhood as also being reflected in the relation of male and female. Mm. Uh, that this is this is an important dynamic for human life because God created us that way. Now Saint Paul tells us that the conjugal act of husband and wife is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church, uh, which I think is a, a a more focused or specific way uh, of. Um, expounding that idea from genesis that we reflect the character of god uh, in our relationship as man and woman now it's not just mere sexuality it's not just a, a physical act of sex it is sexuality expressed in the fullness of a relationship between a man and a woman which we typically understand as being the the uh, characteristics of marriage. And so a a man and a woman who commit an act of matrimony, let's call it, with one another. Uh, Now, in the Catholic world, that's defined very specifically. It has to be an act of such a nature um, as to produce new life. It has to be a procreative act, which um, in a way, uh, limits the range of possible acts that could occur there. Um, and it limits the possible participants in such an <laughs> act. You have to have two people who, if they engage in such an act, have a have a possibility of procreating. Um, and so when when two people do that in the context of marriage, they reflect in a profound and unique way um, the, the character of God himself. You think now we know of God that he's three persons in one. uh, And those persons we understand from analogy with family. We say it's father and son and then the Holy Spirit. Uh, And if you think of the relation of uh, male and female in in a marriage, um, you have the 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 husband and the wife, and from that you have coming new life. So as the father relates to the son and the Holy Spirit is new life in that, or is the love that is reflected there, um, you have um, 
a man and a woman expressing themselves and a, a new human being, which is an expression of the love uh, between those two. So you have this kind of dynamism that's reflected yeah. uh, in those kind yeah. of relationships. So, so I want to come back to some of those kind of issues a little bit more and, and if you will flesh them out uh, mm-hmm. just, just a yeah. little more uh, because right. you, you know, so we're going to come back to that, but keying in on this kind of idea of, you know, male, female, the bearing of children, that that being at least a, 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 you know, a primary reason, you know, in the Bible for sex, I mean, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, we'll talk about maybe some of the other reasons for sex or, or, or benefits or, or not, but um, what are kind of some of the benefits of a specifically male and female lifelong union? And the reason that I ask, of course, is because the major issue in our culture, a question for our culture today is, well, really any two people or any four people. Throuple, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, we've yeah. got polygamy right. and polyamory are on the rise right. and, you know, you've right. got, you know, anyway, what, what is, what are, are there benefits? I mean, the Bible says there are benefits, but does any data bear out that there actually are benefits to the, to the limiting of a lifelong male, female couple, and then the fruit that they produce? Okay. All right. Well, I, I, I want to answer your question. I think you want not a biblical answer to that question, but you want to know from the uh, evidence and the data. Well, I'm, I'm happy with both too, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, so I want to give you a secular answer to that question. But w- one of the things that uh, I want to um, just tie off uh, in our uh, Christian understanding of sex, the, the main idea is that um, for Christians, uh, sex is a sacred thing. Uh, it is it is um, uh, it, um, it elevated. Um, mm. Now, a lot of times, people it, when they're in a sexual relationship, they'll talk it in this kind of language, and they'll say, "Wow, this is just really divine. This is uh, amazing." And, Otherworldly, you know, yeah. Yeah, you know, oh God, this is wonderful, and um, and that sense of transcendence mm-hmm. in our sexuality is something that I think is brought to us by our faith. In fact sociologists have uh, studied um, persons in different um, kind of understandings uh, of their of their sex relationships um, and a, a famous a, um, description um, of this by the sociologist whose name I don't remember at the moment I will come to me um, talked about the, the pure relationship which is where two people without any context um, uh, or expectations enter into this this kind of um, uh, sexual relationship without any kind of strings attached, right? And he, uh, that's the model or the image of uh, the ideal of a sexual relationship in in most sociological secular understanding today um, is that you don't have the um, uh, restrictions of uh, gender roles, of heteronormativity, of all of these expectations, but you can just enter into it without any limitations. But one of the things they've discovered uh, is that people who attempt to do that lose the sense of transcendence in their sexual relations. It becomes mm-hmm. perfunctory. Uh, it becomes mm. uh, something that's just for pleasure only um, and it and it, it kind of demeans the experience, even to those who are participating in it and and even advocating it. Um, 
they recognize that you're going to lose a sense of of transcendence and meaning mm-hmm. in that kind of sexual relationship. So there's kind of a there's kind of a trade-off where it's like now sex is everywhere but no one likes it anymore you know <laughs> it, it it or it's it seems like right. it, it's everywhere but people don't have it as much or it's everywhere but it's joyless you know it's like obligatory we have to shake our behind you know at at a, at a you know on a video or you know a music video or something but I don't, you know what I mean? It just feels, yes. it seemed, it seems joyless to me, but what do I know? You know, I'm a, I'm a crank. So. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and um, data has also shown that young people today are having less sex. There's less uh-huh. interest. Uh, and so, you know, for, for, to age 35, uh, both men and women today are, are engaged in less amount of time in their lives that they're in sexual relationships. Um, and um, so we, we've lost hold of um, kind of something important about sex. Now, let me get to your second question, because this is a good one. Uh, what are some of the um, kind of practical um, uh, uh, secular reasons uh, for sex um, and for marriage uh, well, we have to begin by recognizing that almost every human culture that we know of has something that we would recognize as marriage. Uh, mm-hmm. They have developed uh, a, an institution uh, that um, regularizes uh, sex relations. And amazingly, these forms of marriages are far more similar than they are different. Um, and so one of the first things that marriage brings in almost every culture is sexual exclusivity. There's a presumption, if not a strong commitment and strong sanctions uh, on that man and that woman having sex only with each other and not with anyone else. Um, Now, the reason that that developed um, uh, reveals to us one of the most important reasons of marriage uh, and that is, it keeps us alive. <laughs> the 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 uh, fidelity or sexual exclusivity that's expressed in marriage uh, is a great protection against uh, communicated diseases, uh, particularly in uh, you know in, uh, cultures in in world history before the discovery of antibiotics. Couples who were not faithful to one another would open themselves up to sexually transmitted diseases and other communicable diseases mm-hmm. and would not tend to survive. And, and in fact, um, the anthropologists speculate that, you know, there may have been a number of cultures that did not develop strong norms of sexual exclusivity and didn't survive as a result. Mm. Uh, they were wiped out by disease. Now, we've seen a great pandemic disease in our global society in the past three or four years, (coughs) excuse me, that um, has surprised us with its virulence, even in the face of all of the modern medicine that we have. And we found that the only way that we could control it was through what? Isolation, staying apart with your own family unit and not going out with others. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people learned how to stay home. That was a primary mode of protection against this emergent disease. That's true true for a long time. And so one of the uh, primary reasons for marriage, um, as we understand it, uh, is for public health uh, to keep us um, 
from transmitting diseases. Uh, another reason uh, is that um, uh, men and women, um, I, I want to say this the right way, uh, <laughs> it, it, it is that sex tends to produce children. Uh, and child, a child can present um, a set of problems, certainly a set of stresses for um, a married couple, for a couple that's in a sexual relation. Because um, women are, uh, unlike many other species, uh, uh, human women are fertile all the time, or at least they're periodically fertile, you know, certain days of a month continually. It's not as if they have one or two times a year that they're hmm. fertile and they advertise that and they're, they're only open to <laughs> sex relations during those, those times of the year and not any time else. That's the way it is with most higher mammal species, but not ours. So what happens for humans is that a, a man who has sex with a woman and then she gets pregnant never knows for sure that it's his child that she's carrying. He needs some assurance of that fact. The woman never knows for sure if that man is going to stick around and help her raise the child. And so marriage addresses both of those difficult mm -hmm. for men and for women. The second um, most important social reason for marriage is the identification of offspring. Um, and in, into the modern era, that was a, 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 a um, explicit uh, difficulty or um, dynamic for marriages, uh, uh, backed up by law and tradition and custom, um, so that we have longstanding traditions of legitimate children and illegitimate children. Mm -hmm. The purpose of marriage was to ensure that your child would be legitimate. Um, and but we recognize that not all children were uh, even today. Not all children are. Yeah. And so marriage helps to define uh, uh, what are the children that are going to. And this would be the third social benefit of marriage, I believe. Um, it is um, the transmission of inheritance. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it defines who the children are that are going to receive the benefits, the resources of that couple uh, so that they can be raised and they can flourish. And then when that couple passes on, they're going to inherit and maybe carry on some of the goals and, and ideals of that couple. Maybe not, but they're going to reap those resources and carry those forward into a new generation. One of the ways that um, a family is like God is that it exists in all times at once. The family is the only social institution in which you have the past, the present, and the future all together. Mm. You have, you have the, the generation that's, that's being generated to come, and it's going to outlive everyone else. Uh, and then you have the father and the mother, the, the middle uh, progenitors. And then you have the older generation that is uh, traditionally has been cared for by the family. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have this cycle of uh, what what I call uh, intergenerational solidarity that kind of rolls through time, uh, creating uh, love and care and acceptance for all of its participants over time. Now, in our day, a lot of that has been 
co-opted by the government. We have social security for old age. So we say, well, mm -hmm. we don't, we don't have to involve the, the elderly as much, but you know what? Uh, I'm getting to be elderly and <laughs> I have to tell you social security in isolation doesn't do it uh, for, mo for, for almost all of us. It's, the children still are important that need to support you and, and they need us too in many ways. And, um, and the, um, the government, of course, would like to take over child care, uh, beginning, I think, with birth. They'd just like us to deliver the kid to them at the hospital and they can raise them how they want. Uh, and, and yet we're finding out that uh, nothing beats a family, uh, uh, not only for um, the first few months of life when the mother is absolutely essential to a child's well-being, uh, to later years when the father becomes extremely important, uh, but also for education. Uh, I don't think that any, uh, excuse me, <coughs> in general, I don't think that any school system in America could be uh, strong, effective homeschooling uh, with committed parents. Um, so I think we're finding that uh, this uh, institution that we've known for a long time, we believe was established by God, is pre-governmental. Um, it's the, the basic institution of human life. Um, I think we're finding once again in our day that that institution is a whole lot more important than uh, any government replacements of it. Uh, yeah. Let me, let me ask you this. Um, otherwise I'll just motor on, please. No, no, no. You, this is, it's, I love the anthropological piece of it. And I even thought when you were talking about, um, you know, that, that marriage was part of the, the benefit of it is, um, eliminating disease. Right. And right. I thought, man, we've, we've come up with answers to a lot of those diseases now, mm. but having sex outside of marriage presents almost like a new kind of disease. Now it's not necessarily like syphilis or something, but it might be ideological, philosophical heartbreak, all kinds of things. But, uh, I, I want to ask, you know, Christians have sort of been the like perennial buzz kills when it comes to questions of sex. Um, we're always thought as being uptight because we're constantly saying no to lots oh. of different kinds of sex, premarital sex, homosexual sex, the wrong kinds of sex, you know? Right. So help, give us some hope here once married and I am not yet married. So I'm just give me some future hope here. Is there oh. any data to indicate that, you know, Christians married Christians actually like sex? Is there fun happening in the bedroom? Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lot of data that, um, uh, uh, hmm. faith married um, couples. I don't know what, if I would say Christian uh, necessarily, but uh, uh, couples that are in a lifelong marriage uh, and also worship together um, have the happiest, most satisfying sex life uh, by far. Um, mm. but on almost every survey that looks at these uh, questions, um, having sex with one person for mm. your whole life um, uh, does something to energize uh, and to make that a, a very profound um, experience. I, I mentioned earlier, by the way, I remember the name is uh, Anthony Giddens, the English soci British sociologist. The book is called The Transformation of Intimacy. And that's the one that talks about the, the uh, so-called pure relationship, but also about the, the loss of transcendence and in some ways the loss of real meaning uh, in a sexual relationship outside of a religious context. Uh, and that is one of the great benefits 
uh, of marriage and of marriage in a sacred form is that people find a real connection with God uh, mm. in their sexual relationship. It doesn't happen when you're breaking the rules, when you're just going out uh, for, for, for fun and for pleasure. You have to understand, understand that the challenge of marriage, even sexually, um, is that you're laying down your life for another person. You're committing yourself to a person. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think about it, if you have two people and they're both seeking uh, as much pleasure as they can get, um, that's one kind of sex. Yeah. But what, what if you have two people and each of them are seeking for the other person to get the most pleasure they can get? Mm -hmm. so when the wife is saying, well, I don't. I don't know if I'm going to get everything I want, but I want to please him above all. And the husband is saying, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to get what, what I want, but I want to please her above all. And you have two people who are outdoing one another. Yeah. There's a who, Bible verse about that. You know, Maybe it wasn't intended about sex, but it applies. Yeah. And I tell you, you can't beat that for sex uh, because men and women are, are really different. And if they're each going after their own thing, somebody's going to be disappointed. Someone's yeah. going to, someone, someone might have a, a nine or 10 on the scale, but another, the other <laughs> person might only have a one or two, you know, and, and they even might trade off. So well, you, you get yours this time. I'll get mine next time. I mean, you can do all those kind of tricks, but if you have two people who are not transacting business, but are giving gifts who are genuinely laying down their lives for one another, which is what Christ calls us to do. Uh, in our whole lives, but particularly in, in our marriages. Um, wow. It, it sounds like, oh, I, I'm ha having sacrificial sex. I guess I'm just giving, you know, for the other person. It turns out just the opposite. Right. Uh, well, that that's true in so many ways, even outside of sex, right? When you sacrifice right. for someone else, you end up getting such a return. And, and it's not to say that there aren't many, you know, Christian marriages where, you know, like, bad things are happening, right? Like there are people right. who are doing it all wrong. So we're not, right. you know, we don't want to paint this idealistic picture. I mean, there are, there are churches that, you know, seem to tolerate abuse, you mm -hmm. know, in marriages and things like that, you know, so right. we, we, we understand that it, we're kind of having to speak holistically, but talk about the, I mean, well, and it also just seems obvious that if you're married to someone, you're, you know, and, you know, unless you're in the proverbial doghouse, you're going to end up in the same bed with someone night after night, after night, after night, you know, right. it's not a constant question of, you know, well, will, will tonight, will I get lucky tonight? I mean, we even call it that. Will I get lucky tonight? It's like, no. you don't really, those aren't really words that apply in a marriage. Uh, you know, you don't have to get lucky. You've made the commitment and now you mm. get to, you know, you, you reap the right. reward if you will. Mm. So, um, but if you're constantly on the prowl, you're, you have to hope to get lucky or maybe, maybe the, maybe the line will work on the right woman tonight, but maybe it won't the next week <laughs> or something. Well, it's anyway. so in a marriage, you know, it, sex becomes regularized. Uh, and I, I know this may sound unromantic, but a lot of um, couples uh, uh, in, in, at some point in their marriage, they say, you know, let's let's have this night be our night for intimacy. They either fall into a pattern or they they intentionally. Yeah. Pattern. That creates lots of good things about sex. You don't have to play this game. Well, I'm going to get lucky or whatever, you know, you. <laughs> You can plan for it. Uh, you can build um, some good things around it. 
Um, and I, I encourage couples to do that. They don't just expect sex to happen spontaneously in your marriage. <laughs> this is an important part of your ministry to one another and your gifts to one another. So you want to you want to make that special. Uh, I, I you- have one more thing I want to just throw out while we're on this topic. I, I was supposed to punt it over back to Evan, but um, you hear people all the time say, especially younger generations say, well, you know, humans were never meant to be monogamous, especially they'll say it about men. Men are never meant to be monogamous. It's not like our de facto way of being. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, go back to Genesis. God created eve and presented him to adam and what was adam's immediate response wow this is, this is different this is bone of my bone flesh of my flesh and what's amazing there is that it is as if god created eve and and established them nuptially i mean there, there's no place in there where they got married there's no place where they were apart and then they had courtship and they got married no she came and so her natural first normal way of relating to this man was as it was in marriage, was in a sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's the basic normal way for human beings to, to uh, relate. The idea that, that people are non-monogamous um, it, it is an effect, I think, of the fall. Uh, hmm. It is a defection from mm-hmm. God's ideal and God's plan for our lives. Yes. So you would uh, say, if people say, we weren't created to be this way, you'd say, well, actually, if you want to know how we were created, you have to go to Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. Genesis and we, 3 is a perversion of the creation. Right. So We were we were absolutely created to be this way. Um, um, and and um, uh, it, that is to be, if you like it, monogamous. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and that that is our highest and best hmm. way to live. Even Jesus Himself uh, affirmed that for us. It doesn't mean that everyone has to get married. Um, you know, it's it's a mystery and and a, a a profound thing that the the one who created sex when he became human did never engaged in it himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there are there are higher ends to life. There are ways that uh, sex can can lead us to God uh, by abstaining from it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the idea that we are supposed to have sex with with uh, other people, uh, a number of people, uh, just it is is completely untrue. This idea that well we we have to try try it out. You know, it's, it's like it's like driving a car. We we got to try it out, see if it's going to work before we want to make a commitment to it. You know that. That cheapens and commodifies mm. human life uh, so um, uh, revoltingly uh, mm. that you and I are created for a relationship, a relationship with God. Uh, does that mean we're supposed to try all other gods or other philosophies until we find oh, wow. out through God and somehow that's that's ridiculous. We're created with a heart for the one true God. And we find that great fulfillment in there. I like uh, that metaphor. That's... It's the same way with our um, relationship with uh, the man or the woman that God has called us to be with. Uh, we, we find that person, we are joined to that person and it's for life. Yeah. Uh, and and so uh, let me, yeah, yeah, go let, ahead. Let me jump in. I mean, sure, you're sure. kind of answering the question, but yeah. 
you know, what really are, you know, we've had the sexual revolution or whatever you want to call it since whenever you want to say it started the 1960s or arguably before that, as we talked about with maybe the advent of the pill a little bit before that, but what kind of have been the results, right? I mean, we've had a long enough data pool here, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, whatever the case may be to kind of say, all right, well, we've, we've tried it your way, uh, where, where it's, we've got the hookup culture going on these days. We've got, you know, uh, you know, we've got no fault divorce. We've got, you know, uh, people, we got dating apps. We've, you know, we've, we've kind of had it all right. Free love in the 60s. The convenience of sex. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, so oh, uh, oh. You, you, you mentioned the spread of disease earlier and oh. I think something like a hundred million Americans have, we used to call them STDs. I don't know what they're called. Anymore. STIs. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah. but, um, so, so this, clearly that's gotta be a result. I mean, I don't think if we waited until marriage to have sex and only had sex with one person, we would have a hundred million Americans with STIs. The other thing you mentioned was the, uh, you just mentioned was the, um, uh, the, 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 the degrading of the person. Mm -hmm. how, how did you say that? The commodification. commodification. Yeah. I know, I know, uh, Jennifer like Morse talks a lot about that at Ruth Institute. So uh -huh. I know you guys use a lot of the same language, but what, what are some of the other effects of the sexual revolution? Uh, well, you have, um, 40 million, uh, children, um, uh, mm. killed before birth. Jeez. Mm. Uh, at least, at least due to yeah. abortion. Um, a direct result in my mind of the sexual revolution. You have uh, millions of men and women whose lives have been torn apart by divorce. You have millions more children who have grown up in those broken homes and families, uh, have difficulty trusting persons as adults and entering into relationships with themselves. Uh, you have uh, single mothers as a result. The, the highest predictor of poverty in America is to be a single mother. Um, we have um, uh, untold uh, social problems that come as a result of children who grow up without a father. Uh, not having a father is the highest predictor of um, delinquency, criminality mm -hmm. uh, uh, throughout life. Um, uh, we, we also have... Um, um, a culture in which men and women have trouble trusting each other, uh, connecting with one another. Um, today, we have the, the cultural um, degradation of male-female relationships before marriage to where it's, it's almost impossible to figure out how to find someone uh, to marry, how to, how to have a, a, a positive kind of uh, dating relationship. Uh, young people I, I know um, search for this um, and have trouble um, mm -hmm. finding anything above kind of a cheap sort of hookup bar scene uh, kind of um, connection. So we have we have uh, cheapened kind of a, our whole culture uh, around these issues. Yeah. If it is the, if it is the case that um, um, uh, and women, generally speaking, want to want to give uh, sex in order to get love, mm. and and men want to give love in order to get sex. I know mm. I know that's oversimplification, but there's a lot of truth to it, right? There is. What what has happened today is that 
the the value of sex has become so cheap it, it's so uh easy and so common um that women have to give more and more sex to get less and less love and they end up used and broken and alone men it's feel like, like it's like sex inflation you know yeah, it's yeah, it's, yeah. Worth, it's worth less yeah That's well and it's not just more and more but it's also more and more deviant yeah. different new and creative and crazy and yeah right so yeah. it 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 has uh mind womanhood in a very uh, real and profound way and in turn that has undermined manhood um because men are not called to step up and become a, a real man uh in mm. many ways uh we, culture- we, yeah, sarah, yeah sarah and i were just talking about a it was a kind of phenomenon podcast a while back, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It's about Martin Driscoll and all of that. But one of the reasons that he kind of came to prominence was his call to men to be responsible men, to give up pornography, to give up the hookup culture, to get married young, to have children. I mean, it was a, it was a, an appropriate message for our time and a resonant message. Um, you know, it's kind of the tragic hero thing. The, the thing that kind of made him work also kind of led to the downfall of that church. But that's a whole other story. But well, and Jordan yeah. Peterson does the same thing and then gets called a misogynist and yeah. all these things. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Uh, and there, there's a book that's going to be referenced in the or an author. It's going to be referenced in the um, uh, talk we did with Nancy Piercy about a woman and she's a British woman. And you could probably Google some of these words and find the article. I know the Daily Mail, I think, did a kind of uh, subset or a, a snippet of her book that's about to be published. But she basically talks about a decade of Tinder and yeah. and how yeah. it's left and how men are, you know, especially handsome men uh, are, are the more they're they're so valuable that a lot of women will, you know, do anything to, to try to end up with them, to try to end up marrying them. So the men end up having all the power. So it just, my, my wife will always says women always get the short end of the stick. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at transgenderism, women get the short end of the stick because That's men end up dominating cool. female sports. You look at dating apps, men, you know, women get the short end of the stick because they become commodities. And um, it does, it, yeah. it's hard to argue with that, you know? So it, it, it it feminist will tell us it's all about freedom of expression, right? Like now women can be just as promiscuous as men. So they're uh-huh. they're enjoying the benefits too. It's like that shouldn't uh-huh. be the goal. <laughs> the goal shouldn't be equal, you know, promiscuity. It should be equal security, it seems like. Right. Um, but what let me let me this might be a quick kind of a quick uh, answer for you, but it is something I've wondered about, which is the Bible talks about two becoming one flesh. What does that mean? Does that mean, <laughs> is it a reference to the sex act? Is it a reference to two people having a child so that both of their genetic contributions makes a child? Do you have a kind of pithy answer to that? Or is it one of those uh, debated yeah. questions where people don't ever agree, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that I have any any great wisdom or insight on that. But I, I do think that it has to do with uh, one new human life coming out of okay. the relationship of two others uh, so that the two become one flesh it's often understood as uh one person or one spirit um and i i I think that's probably you know that's a misreading uh technically uh but i think there is something to that that uh two uh lives are joined together uh two destinies are are joined together uh and become unified in that uh but no i i don't have any deep 
I, as soon as we end this podcast, I'll some great insight will hit me and I'll say, oh, I only wish. But <laughs> Well, we'll just have to have you back on then. That's it. Um, I know you, you mentioned this toward the beginning of the podcast about there's always the potential for uh, creating children. And I mean, we're Protestant, you're Catholic, so this we might differ on this, but I'm curious um, if you think Christians can enjoy sex without the prospect of procreation. I mean, I can't imagine the answer is no, because at a certain age, that's no longer on the table. Are you supposed to stop having sex once a woman is, you know, not yeah. childbearing years anymore? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Catholics say that um, sex has to be open to life. Um, uh, it doesn't mean that you actually have to achieve life uh, because we know that uh, a number of couples are open to life, but they're infertile for reasons beyond their mm-hmm. control. Uh, so there is always the divine element in procreation. That's why we call it procreation, right? So um, uh, two people can do their part and it takes God to bless and sometimes he, most of the time he does bless, but sometimes he doesn't. Uh, you may, you may know or not that uh, my wife and I uh, struggled with infertility for quite a long time. Um, so I, I'm speaking from experience here. Um, it isn't, it isn't that we didn't enjoy our sex relations during that time, um, but um, uh, there was a, um, a sorrow kind of that hung over. Yeah. Uh, each each month, my wife would, you know, uh, see if maybe she had conceived that month and then was disappointed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, went, we went through that uh, difficulty for a long time. If you have a minute, I could tell you the rest of this story. It's interesting uh, and really a story of God's grace for us because it had something to do with us uh, coming into the Catholic faith from Episcopalianism, if that's the right word. Um <laughs> We um, uh, so we we couldn't um, we couldn't conceive, and uh, eventually we tried the in vitro fertilization. Uh, we went to the clinic um, and went through the um, intake, and we came out. and My wife said, "I can't do this," and I didn't understand why she couldn't do it. Uh, seemed like good modern medical science, and it would solve our problem. We could have our kids, and da da da. Um, but she couldn't do it. And so I looked into it. And the more I looked into it, uh, the more difficulties I found for myself with this mm-hmm. uh, process of in, in vitro fertilization. Um, and I found that the, the Catholic teaching on it was really right on, uh, was um, uh, the clearest. Um, and so we said, well, we can't do that. What are we going to do in order to uh, conceive? Well, I had learned about this thing called natural family planning, which Catholics do, which is a, a way of um, discouraging conception. But you can also do it backwards to encourage. Right. So that's what we did. We joined the natural family planning course and instantly got to know all these gung ho young Catholic couples. Um, and uh, that had its own effect. Uh, well, uh, and not to belabor the story, we uh, <laughs> d- didn't conceive through natural family planning either. We c- decided to adopt. That's how we got our uh, multiracial family of with two adopted children. We adopted one from Korea, and then later we adopted one from China. But when we adopted the one from Korea, um, our our son, who is now 42, I think, um, 
came off of the plane. We took him home. Um, and that night we conceived a child. Oh my goodness. And wow. so we had, he, he was eight years old when we got him. So we had, we had a nine year old and an infant, uh, nine months later. Um, and it's the only time we've ever conceived a child. Mm. Uh, we, we believe that God blessed us uh, in a special way with that. Um, so are, were we fertile or infertile? I, I would say we'd have mm. to say fertile. We had it. We did have a, a child. Mm. Um, but, um, it's not been something that's, that's come easily for us or, or common. Yeah. We, yeah. we would, we would have loved to have had eight or 10 kids, you know, but we have three. Uh-huh. I, I will say, I, I kind of feel like I have to say as a Protestant, I, I, I think actually the, the Protestant <laughs> church has been too lax on this question of, you know, of, uh, of, uh, um, the birth control pill, et cetera, the, pro, um, prophylactics, um, I, I, I think I, I like the Roman Catholic Church. We'll talk about something like a um, a, a, a what, what is it? It's like a prophylactic mindset or hmm. um, contraceptive mindset. They call a it. contraceptive mindset. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree. I think that's a problem. And when I do, you know, when I do work with uh, couples and like premarital counseling, I'll I'll encourage them away from uh from prophylactics etc so yep. for contraceptive um if at all possible i mean i think there could be some defense of it if you know there are health issues or some other issues kind of involved you know pregnancy right. could be dangerous or something but those are but generally speaking you should be open to life and we should be you know right. we should be needing you know wanting to bear you know a good number of children so i i think that the protestant church does need to rethink that and we need to you know mm-hmm. kind of start to really think about that i will say that um and 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 i think it I would I'm just going to put it in my own plug here for IVF saying we really need to rethink that. I mean, we are oh, talking yeah. about fertilized eggs being frozen indefinitely. There was a talk uh, it can be found. Um, I think Canon Press put it out. I know people don't like yeah. Canon Press, but anyway, it was a talk at Hillsdale. Uh, one of the scholars there, I think he uh, maybe it wasn't Hillsdale. Anyway, it was a talk about the Dave Rubin situation, how he and his gay partner used essentially IVF to produce children and how gross that whole thing really was. Um, People need to really think about that. You know, they talked about using their sister's eggs, which would make her both the mother and her, the aunt to her own child. It it is, it just is not right. I I think we really need to rethink that. Um, In fact, I think I've lost a few members through the years. Um, because I, I I couldn't get on board with IVF and I think they wanted mm-hmm. to have a child. And I think it was mm-hmm. one of those deals where, yeah, I don't know anyway, but, um, but you don't want to, you don't want to ask how the sausage is made. Right. It's just mm-hmm. when you start to look into IVF and the, you know, for every viable embryo, they have to discard right. uh, some, some fertilized embryos. Well, I think those are human beings being discarded. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and meanwhile, there's a lot of children that need to be adopted and aren't. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Let, let me ask kind of one more question here. I know we're kind of running out of time, but um, this is something that people actually really want an answer to, which is, all right, let's 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 agree that you've got two people, a male and a female. They're in a marital relationship. Everything is good so far. Right. All the benefits there and all that. But still. You know, there's a kind of a question of like what is still permissible, right? Is is everything on the table? And without maybe describing all the things that one one ought not to do, would you be comfortable maybe kind of saying, you know, here's kind of the boundary marker, um, you know, of of what 
you know, what is appropriate? Uh, you know, there isn't agreement on this. And, you know, sometimes couples kind of want to, um, I, I don't know what you might say, spice things up or whatever. They they kind of wonder yeah. what's permissible. Um, pornography has had an effect on this, I think, but, you know, but, you know, because people kind of think, well, let's let's try this thing or whatever. Yeah, let All me right. throw this in the mix just to make it a little bit more spicy. I didn't yeah. tell Evan I was going to do this, but um you know, we have several people that listen to the show that are Christians. They're in a monogamous, loving Christian marriage, and wow. they know that we're doing the series and they've asked questions like, well, what about the stuff nobody talks about? And I'll, one mm -hmm. of the more tame ones, like what about, uh, pleasuring oneself apart from your spouse when you're married, you know, like your, your partner is, I mean, your, your partner, your husband or your wife is out of town on a business trip or something. Um, right. the big M word, it comes up all the time in our, when people send in questions for various events that we do that uh -huh. kind of thing. I think no one ever wants to talk about. Is it, is it quote, allowed? What's that? Monogamy. What, what's the, that's not the one. That's not uh, the one. I think um, I know what the word is right. But, but that's the kind of thing I think that Evan is, right. is asking about is what are the rules? And we're not going to ask you to get too graphic here, or be uncomfortable, but, um, uh, but people well, are asking these questions, you know, or, okay. Hmm. Well, I, I think, I think I could, I could hang myself here. So I, I need to be kind of careful. Um, I, I'm going to speak to you as a Catholic um, and it, and also from my own personal experience as a married man, I've been married 37 years. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Very happily. We have a very mutually satisfying sex life. Um, so uh, what are some boundaries? Well, one one boundary to answer your question um, is that you, you you never have have sex or or pleasure yourself without your partner. It you always have to have sex with your partner. Um, it is a um, an act of love between the two of you, and to and to to exclude one or the other from that, even with their knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, would be to um, uh, make a choice to please yourself and not to please that other person. That goes Remember, back to what you were saying earlier. Yeah. Goal is to please that other person. Um, and, and it makes, so for me, it makes my wife very special because mm -hmm. she is my source and my only source for sexual um, satisfaction mm -hmm. and I'm her source and her only source and that's by God's design so it draws us always together the problem is if you start doing things by yourself you might like that and you might get into that more and more and then if they've got yeah. trouble with that then you know it's a step away from each other and you don't you don't want to take that now uh, I don't want to magnify that the the um, culpability of that well, it's wrong. Shouldn't do it. But, uh, you know, I don't think that we should focus in, in real intense ways uh, on on um, sexual uh, transgressions of that nature. Um, I, I, it's just not it, you won't be happy. It won't end up happy. Not the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not the best. Um, so I think that in in the kind of. Um, details of the of your sexual uh, relations or your lovemaking um what's essential is as i've said that the the act that you engage in 
is such uh, that it would be suitable for the procreation of a child. Now, in practical terms, that means that uh, the man's sperm has to be transmitted uh, to the uh, body parts of the woman that um, by which she could be fertilized. Mm-hmm. Um, that is um, a that without which I, I you cannot have legitimate, I think, licit sexual relations without that happening. Um, so that kind of limits um, yeah. a lot that you that's, can do. Yeah, that's 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 the boundary. But, yeah, but it but it doesn't it doesn't limit everything. So you know, um, moral theologians talk about what you might do before that. Uh, a long time ago, they decided that if if um, the the um, woman desired to be manually stimulated so that she could better receive the man's sex organ, there was nothing wrong with that, and, and they encouraged that. Um, just so long as that's not all that happens. Um, I think it's also, you can use your imagination and think of mm-hmm. some that you could do. Uh, so long as you end up um, transmitting the, that semen uh, to that presumably vagina uh, so that um, uh, fertilization could occur, right? Mm-hmm. Now, fertilization is up to God. Sometimes it's not going to occur. I can testify to that. Many times yeah. it didn't occur when we wanted it to. Um, but it didn't really matter too much what we did, um, you know, whether who was on top, whether it was <laughs> from behind or in front or, you know, some of these things people were, uh, those things I think are up to the couple and they should, they should do what they both find fun and satisfying. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so long as uh, it, you don't end with something short of a, a godly act of, of um, copulation, I guess we'd call it. Um, the other thing I'd say is that, um, you know, sex can be a, a place where there are um, conflicts of power. Uh, mm. where one partner wants to dominate the other. Uh, and so it creates an injustice. Uh, and uh, in, in Catholic thinking, uh, the the problem with most sex relations outside of marriage is that they're violations of justice. They're unfair. They're unjust to somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we call fornication is, is really a, a sin of injustice. It's not it, it, it's not primarily because it's it's sexual, but it it um, defrauds and mistreats uh, one one of the partners, usually the woman. Um, homosexual relations also uh, are they they are unnatural and wrong in that way uh, in Catholic thinking. But e- even before that, they're they're a violation of justice, um, and um, yeah. So I think that's. All I'm all all I'm going to say about in the famous words of Forrest Gump, that that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> no, that's actually really helpful, and I appreciate you treading into dicey waters there because um, so few people are willing to do that. But I I think you've laid out some really beautiful boundaries that are for our best from God, right? So so I really appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll say too without anyone else needing to say anything but i let, let me give an example it wasn't maybe five years ago that i think teen vogue okay gave young women 
advice on how to have anal sex. I'm just going to say it. Um, You know, so there's something very wrong in the sex culture when, you know, we're telling teenagers how to do that. It's not even sort of, it's, it's not, we're not just talking about premarital sex. We're not, we're not just talking about teenage sex. We're not just talking about promiscuous sex. We're not talking about sex involving body parts that aren't made for that Mm -hmm. and yet have been normalized by the pornographic culture. So, um, I, I, and you don't have to answer this, but you know, I, I think that, um, is it, is it, is it too much to say that, um, ah, let's just be blunt, certain bodily orifices, certain openings, certain cavities, um, are better than others. Uh, you know, the obvious one being, you know, the best and, Uh and then that, and then others being totally inappropriate. Well, I, you know, you go back to um, an, an act suitable for the right. productive life. Um, that rules out any other uh, bodily orifice. Yeah. And it, it, anal sex cannot produce human life. Okay. And so really not a legitimate form of, of sexuality. Uh, it is also uh, much more dangerous in terms of disease and disease transmission. Mm-hmm. Um and um, and can be harmful. It, anal sex always involves one person who dominates another. Right? Oh, that goes of, back to the justice thing you were talking about, right. power. It, and and so it's you know it's it's um, misordered in in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a good uh, way to say it. I, I don't think I, we should uh, be harsh and judgmental toward people who who are caught up in that kind of behavior um, because their thinking is so twisted and the culture is so twisted uh, that for them, it might seem uh, good and normal. And, and so I, you know, I think we need to be gentle and caring Mm -hmm. toward people who do that. Um, And often we, we have a hard time, I think doing that because it's, it's disgusting and we want to kind of react to that thing that's disgusting. But, uh, Aquinas says that when someone's um, um, when someone's nature is itself uh, perverted or or is defective, then the actions that they take to them seem natural, mm-hmm. seem good even, uh, and that's the. You know, the problem when St. Paul says that God turns folk over to a reprobate mind there in Romans 1, it means they can't recognize the the evil that they're doing. They just don't know. Yeah. And uh, Jesus said that uh, the fact that those who were killing him didn't know what they were doing was why they should be forgiven. So I, yeah. I think there's a lot of grace and a lot of mercy. Yeah. Uh, all of these topics. But, but that should not stop us from being utterly clear as you've been so good and so clear, Evan, um, that, uh, this is, this is not, um, healthy human sexuality. It, yeah. it, it is and, something. And I, I, I kind of felt the, the need to name it because yep. actually I think even in Christian marriages, 
because that practice has become so normalized in the pornographic culture that I think a lot of Christian oh. women don't have anyone speaking for them when they say, yeah. hey, I don't want to participate in that. And the man can say, hey, we're married. Everything's on the table. But yeah. it is a yeah. power dynamic that's that's going on. There's a health dynamic that's going yeah. on. Yeah. There's a lot there. And I really I do think that we need to start naming the thing um and and start to talk about it a little bit more honestly and not maybe not from the pulpit but but in a forum like this and by the way like every one of these podcasts we're going to put out even though we haven't said a naughty word and we've been very gentle how we talk about it we're going to go ahead and put the explicit label on it we think that that way adults know hey don't listen to this when the kids are around and we want to have the freedom to kind of be honest about it and talk about it but we're also going to have a disclaimer that says there's really not explicit content, but it's yeah. it's mature content because as Christians, sometimes yeah. we need to talk about it freely. But um, we're just yeah. about out of time. I want to I want to really thank you for for uh, coming on today. Um, and there are other tangential issues uh, that maybe are kind of more in the sociological realm or the familial realm. Like, for example, yeah. the benefits of a child having a mother and a father, which you've written yeah. extensively about um, the you know, the question of gender and, and how, or sex really, you know, as in, you know, how, what all that means, where can people go if they want to learn more? I found you, like I said, through the Ruth Institute, you know, uh, poor Jennifer Roback Morse and, and you are both considered, you know, very dangerous, controversial figures in some circles, but, uh, where, where can people find you in more material and those other issues that people might want to explore more? Well, uh, most of my work is, is in the, um, academic scholarly literature. So uh, literally, if you go to PubMed or one of those academic ba- databases and just Google my name, um, uh, the, those topics will come up. Uh, but the Ruth Institute really is a, a great place to begin. Uh, they have a resource page on my work. Uh, a lot of the uh, popularizations uh, of it, the uh, uh, PowerPoint slide lectures and things like that that help to explain it even some YouTube um, videos that help to explain some of these things uh, more fully. So that would be, I would say that uh, ruthinstitute.org is probably the best place. Gotcha. Well, good deal. We'll say that one more time. Dangerous as we may be. Yeah. I, I, well, I hear you. Um, Let's just say uh, the critics are very politically correct these days, and and you gotta you, yeah. you know you got got to be careful. Uh, you have to do discernment work as a Christian to know who's who's safe and who's not. But thank you so much, uh, Doctor Solens, for your time. Uh, thanks to our listeners for 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 catching out this podcast and listen to us. For for Sarah, I'm Evan. We want to thank you again for listening. Check out HoustonTOT.com to learn more. And until next time, we encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.